Hi, welcome to the podcast. In this session, we will cover ovarian vein thrombosis. Ovarian vein thrombosis is estimated to complicate 1 per 600 to 1 per 2,000 pregnancies, typically in the postpartum period. Anatomically, the ovarian vein represents a portion of the deep venous system and a direct connection to the inferior vena cava on the right and to the renal vein on the left. In obstetrics and gynecology, ovarian vein thrombosis is a relatively rare condition that can be associated with septic pelvic thrombophlebitis. It has been associated with the postpartum period with states of malignancy and abdominal and pelvic surgery. It has also been associated with pelvic inflammatory disease and even with inflammatory bowel disease. It has been reported to occur in 0.05% to 0.2% of all pregnancies, mainly in the postpartum period, and it's been reported in up to 2% of cesarean sections. Several theories have been proposed to explain the increased risk of ovarian vein thrombosis in the peripartum and postpartum periods. This can include venous stasis or damage, endometritis, and increased circulation of von Willebrand factor and clotting factors 1, 2, 7, 8, 9, and 10. Now, according to ACOG, cancer is the most important risk factor for ovarian vein thrombosis and twice as frequent compared with patients with leg DVT. It is well established that patients with an unprovoked venous thromboembolism carry a fourfold increased risk of occult malignancy and that 10% of these patients will have a new diagnosis of cancer within the ensuing year after the venous thromboembolism diagnosis. The most common cancer was ovarian cancer followed by pancreatic and hepatic malignancies. Additionally, ovarian vein diameter increases threefold in pregnancy and after delivery blood flow in the vein decreases which contributes to venous stasis. Ovarian vein thrombosis occurs in the right gonadal vein in up to 90% of cases, so that's a clinical pearl, and this is most likely because of its longer length, multiple incompetent valves, and the dextral rotation of the gravid uterus. The classic presentation of ovarian vein thrombosis is the triad of pelvic pain, fever, and a right-sided abdominal mass. But tachycardia, hypotension, tachypnea, lower quadrant or even flank pain, nausea, vomiting, ileus, and even pyuria have all been reported. Blood cultures are positive in rare cases. Symptoms generally occur in the first four weeks postpartum, but most frequently occur in the first 10 days days. It has been suggested that up to 50% of patients who are found to have ovarian vein thrombosis have a prothrombotic predisposition like antiphospholipid syndrome, factor V Leiden mutation, or protein S deficiency, although the propensity to find a thrombophilia is somewhat controversial and some authors state it's much less than the 50% that has been projected. 
Multiple studies have evaluated various imaging modalities to diagnose septic pelvic thrombophlebitis and ovarian vein thrombosis, and a consensus has not been reached as to which type of imaging is the modality of choice. One study showed magnetic resonance and geography to have 100% sensitivity and specificity. Computed tomography or CT scan with IV contrast had 80% sensitivity and 60% specificity, and colored Doppler ultrasound had only 50% sensitivity and 40% specificity. Conversely, a different study showed that CT had 100% sensitivity and 99% specificity, and MR imaging 90% sensitivity and 100% specificity. Differences in reported sensitivities and these specificities may be attributed to broad confidence intervals for sensitivity without actual statistical difference, given both studies use similar reference standards and imaging equipment. However, this is difficult to confirm given the confidence intervals which were not reported by many trials. So in brief, as of right now, both CT venography or CT with IV contrast or MR venography are considered more or less comparable for the evaluation of both septic pelvic thrombophobitis and ovarian vein thrombosis. All right, now let's talk about clinical presentation. Given the nonspecific presentation of ovarian vein thrombosis, it's important to maintain a high level of suspicion because a delay in diagnosis may lead to potentially life-threatening complications, including ovarian abscess, ovarian infarction, septic thrombophlebitis, and extension into the inferior vena cava, and on rare occasions, pulmonary embolism, uterine necrosis, and uteral compression. Now remember that clinically this can present, especially in the postpartum state, as fever that fails to resolve with typical and usual antibiotic therapy. When symptomatic and incidental PE were included, PE incidence rates in patients with ovarian vein thrombosis have been reported in up to 13% to 25% of cases and have been observed after laparotomy to treat ovarian vein thrombosis. So that's a clinical pearl. PE is not only related to leg DVT, but it has been reported with ovarian vein thrombosis. Okay, when we come back, let's talk about treatment options once diagnosis is made. There are currently no treatment guidelines defined for ovarian vein thrombosis, but classically, treatment recommendations have included a combination of antibiotics, especially when septic pelvic thrombophlebitis is being considered, as well as anticoagulation. Now, some authorities have recommended that when thrombophlebitis is suspected currently, a 7 to 10 days minimum dose of anticoagulation with IV low molecular weight heparin or unfractionated heparin with a later bridge to oral anticoagulation. Now, up to three months of anticoagulation has been recommended if the thrombus extends into the renal veins or the inferior vena cava. If septic thrombophlebitis is suspected, antibiotic options include ampicillin sulbactam, piperacillin tazobactam, ticarcillin clavulanate, or ceftriaxone plus metronidazole. Antibiotic choice has been guided by cervical or endometrial cultures in the past when available. 
Now, what about the length of time of anticoagulation? Well, that also is a little controversial. The appropriate length of anticoagulation in patients diagnosed with ovarian vein thrombosis is still under investigation. According to some data, the recurrence of ovarian vein thrombosis when compared with lower extremity DVT to determine the appropriate length of anticoagulation has actually been studied. One study evaluated 35 patients diagnosed with ovarian vein thrombosis and 114 patients diagnosed with DVT and followed them over a 16-year period. The average length of anticoagulation with an anticoagulant or warfarin was five months in the ovarian vein thrombosis group and six months in the DVT group. Recurrence rates were comparable between the ovarian vein thrombosis and DVT groups at three per 100 patient years of follow-up when thrombosis extension was included in recurrence rates. All events within the ovarian vein thrombosis group occurred within the first two months of the initial thrombus. Given the comparable recurrence rates between ovarian vein thrombosis and the DVT groups, the authors concluded that general treatment guidelines for DVT may be applicable to all cases of ovarian vein thrombosis. They recommended three months of anticoagulation if an underlying cause was identified whereas a longer course might be considered if the ovarian vein thrombosis was otherwise idiopathic, and they recommend up to six months of treatment. Now remember, this is specifically for ovarian vein thrombosis. The length of time for septic pelvic thrombophlebitis, where small clots are found in the veins of the broad ligament, is usually less, usually about seven to ten days. All right, now this is a good time to reference the ACOG July 2018 practice bulletin regarding treatment of any thromboembolism in pregnancy. That's ACOG practice bulletin number 196, specifically in regards to the new oral direct thrombin inhibitors and anti-10A inhibitors. According to the college, oral direct thrombin inhibitors and anti-10A inhibitors should be avoided in pregnancy and lactation because there are insufficient data to evaluate safety for the woman, the fetus, and breastfeeding neonate. Ex vivo studies of human placentas demonstrate transfer of oral direct thrombin inhibitors and anti-10A inhibitors across the placenta, which raises concern for an indirect effect on fetal blood coagulation. Similarly, maternal ingestion of oral direct thrombin inhibitors and anti-10A inhibitors results in detectable levels in human milk. All right, now as we wrap up this podcast, remember that there's a separate individual podcast that reviews that ACOG practice bulletin number 196 regarding thromboembolism in pregnancy. Okay, that wraps up our podcast covering ovarian vein thrombosis. Overall, relatively rare. However, as we are having an increased level of suspicion and increased diagnostic imaging, we're finding this condition in a greater percentage of cases. Again, according to the college, the overall incidence tends to be about 1 in 600 to 1 in 2,000 pregnancies, especially in the postpartum period, in those patients who present with that triad, remember, of pain, fever, and abdominal or flank pain. Well, thanks for listening. We'll see you next time on Dr. Chapa's Clinical Pearls.